Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks with Tom Philpot, author of the new book Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. They discuss the many perils the U.S. agricultural industry faces and solutions that can save it. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. Today, I'm incredibly honored to have Tom Philpot on the show. He is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. His book that just came out is called Perilous Bounty, uh, which examines the current state of agriculture in the United States and presents solution to prevent its inevitable collapse. Um, so it was published this month. I'm really excited that it, it came out. This has been a long anticipated book for many of us in, in sort of the food world. Um, Tom is also the author of two podcasts, The Bite Podcast, which discusses the politics and science of what we eat through storytelling, and The Secret Ingredient Podcast, which is featured on KUT 90.5 uh, NPR in Austin, Texas. Um, when I was describing Tom the other day to someone, I called him a modern day Upton Sinclair, who is letting us all know the truth about what's happening in the food system um, with his incredible writing and storytelling. And, and what I like most about his book, Perilous Bounty, is that it, you know, it, it goes through a lot of the problems that we're facing in agriculture in the United States, but it also presents some really exciting solutions that are already happening. So I'm thrilled to have you here today, Tom. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Danny. I'm so excited about this conversation. Awesome. So, you know, I guess my first question is why write this book now? I, I, I know it was written pre-pandemic and I'm wondering, you know, again, why write it now and what would you have changed if, if you were writing it today instead of, you know, last year? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the pandemic has really kind of shown us how bad we are as a society um, at dealing with crisis. We're not, we don't have a lot of resilience uh, built in, into our society. Right. And, 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 you know, the pandemic also showed just, you know, that really kind of gross uh, extent to which corporate power plays into something like a, a, a crisis response. And um, I mean, you know, everything's a little bit uh, extreme under Donald Trump, but sure. just the way that, meatpacking workers um, have been, you know, thrust into this role as quote unquote essential workers, not given protections and given a fig leaf by the government with this executive order that the, right. um, you know, that the administration gave. Um, and so in really in a lot of ways, I think, I, I don't know how much I would have changed um, because I'm talking about crises that we're going to have to deal with going forward and we're going to have to get prepared for. Um, I, I guess um, one thing that I, I would do if I had had more time and I uh, wish that I had had more time to do this, and that is expand the purview of the book to also talking about workers. Sure. Um, and I, I, I allude to it, you, you come away from it, um, you know, seeing it here and there in the book. But, um, you know, the book is really about how these crucial ecosystems, these um, really kind of highly productive landscapes are being sacrificed to, um, to produce um, a lot of food in a, in a very um, un- 
unintelligent way. Right. Like neither of the, the regions, uh, Central Valley of California and the Corn Belt of, of the Midwest are being used in a way to, um, you know, produce food in a smart way to feed people. Um, yeah. And I, I, I drive that point home, but I also wish that I had been able to drive home that it's also literally consuming the bodies and lives of workers um, at the same time. And, and I think the pandemic has just sort of pushed that into our faces. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you do mention in the intro, and as you said, you allude to workers throughout, but what, what I liked is that you wrote, I hope this book can serve as a, we a weapon of sorts for the, the uh, worker justice movements. And I, I think, you know, it, that's a very powerful statement because I, I think we need those sorts of tools, if you want a more positive instead of weapon, but those sorts of tools to, to use right now so that we can amplify um, the great work being done by the Food Chain Workers Alliance, you know, um, by One Fair Wage, all of these groups that are really working to protect workers right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I just wanted, um, I wanted those groups to, and farm worker groups in the Central Valley and um, water, you know, clean water activists in places like Iowa to um, also be able to say, not only are you ruining our lives, but you're really imperiling the food system with with the way that you're doing things. Um, Absolutely. So, so that was the idea with that. Absolutely. Do you fear that because of COVID-19 that we're ignoring some of the other problems that you bring up in the book, like you know the climate crisis and water shortages and all of the other things that industrial ag are really contributing to? I do. Um, and you know, it's funny, I feel like 2020, I think if uh, the pandemic weren't, weren't happening, I feel like the big story of 2020 would be the climate ravages that we're seeing every day. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, um, huge parts of the Northeast were without power from you know crazy hurricane. Maybe you were in Baltimore. I'm not sure if. I'm in. Yeah, we we were fine, but all of like New York, all of our friends in New York lost power. This derecho storm, you know, comes and whips through Iowa, flattens right. a huge portion of the corn crop. Now we have these fires in California and there, there is, you know, and, you know, fire tornadoes in California. Right. Um, and I feel like this would be, you know, yet another year when the climate crisis is becoming impossible to ignore. And I think that is happening, but I think that our attention is, is pulled away both by the, the pandemic and the, um, you know, the wild politics coming out of uh, sure. the, the, the sort of news cycle coming out of uh, Washington is just, you know, breathtaking. And I think it does take a lot of attention away from topics like like my book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, that's why this book is important. I hope folks will go out and read it. We'll give information at the end of the podcast where folks can find it. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, Tom, and talk about um, your visit to Monsanto. Um, and I don't know if you know, I'm from Defiance, Missouri, which is about a county over from where Monsanto's headquarters used to be. And you talk about meeting with um, the then ch chief scientist, Rob Fraley. And I remember um, in 2009, I visited the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. And I when I was reading your description of Monsanto, I kind of felt the same way, kind of like, you know, this idea of going into the belly of the beast. And, you know, when I got there and talked to folks, it, it wasn't 
so awful. I mean, I, I don't agree with a lot of the things that they do for sure, but your description of, of, I'm wondering if you can share it with our, our viewers and listeners, you know, just sort of your experience with, with Dr. Fraley, the whole sort of, you know, Monsanto, uh, you know, image that a lot of us already have in our heads. Yeah. So I was absolutely delighted to, to do that. And, um, I can't remember. So this was a period when they were doing a lot of inviting of journalists to come, you know, like, hey, we're transparent, you know, come and see us. And there was a lot of invitations going out. And I can't remember if they reached out to me, um, but I got a gig at uh, Washington University to uh, in St. Louis to to, um, give a talk and um, excellent professor there, Glenn Stone, who's an anthropologist who covers um, basically stuff like the green revolution in Africa, those are, that's basically that kind of thing is this topic. Yeah. And, um, so the two, I finagled an invitation for the two of us and we were like two, um, large adult, um, kids <laughs> in a candy shop. Uh, we were getting to meet um, Dr. Fraley. He had met him and ba- he had uh, seen him in baseball games and they had had conversations, sure. um, before, but, uh, of course I had never. And, um, and it was just surreal. And, you know, we had his undivided attention and, you know, we were getting this story of, um, you know, basically we're not really a GMO company, we're a seed breeding company. And, you know, we use GMOs only when other things fail, sure. which is just surreal because they had spent the last 15 years uh, talking about GMOs as this powerful, precise technology yeah. that, that is the answer. Um, and then we um, we kind of did long conversation with Rob and some other people, and then we we went on these tours to the facility. Have you ever been in the facility? I've been at the facility in Sacramento, but not the the headquarters. Yeah. And so it's this you know vast sprawling thing, and we go section by section, and we talk to sort of the chief uh, people at um, at each section, and. Um, and it was just, uh, I mean, you know, we were, I, you know, I think that the, the thing that really got me was, um, was we go into the, the uh, biologicals division, which was a new division at that time. And so what they're doing is they're selling, um, you know, um, like microbiota that you can put in your soil right. and it's supposed to improve the productivity. And so we go into this division and this guy comes out and you think you're talking to Sir Albert Howard himself or <laughs> Mr. Rodell. He's talking about just that, you know, the bio, you know, how, how important the biotic life of the soil is, how, you know, you pick up a, a handful of soil and there's trillions of organisms, organisms in it and just how crucial that is. And so we're, by this time, you know, it's a few hours into it and I'm feeling high, like I'm feeling stoked. <laughs> <laughs> just from, you know, being, and you know, here's this real experience. And, um, and so, um, we're, you know, we're walking around there and there's these displays everywhere and there's this display of their product and their sure. product, um, had a couple of, uh, microbiota in it. They gave the Latin names. And then it had this really bad fungicide that I had been writing about just, I think the week before I had written about this fungicide that is a potential, um, neuro, uh, Wow. Um, and, um, and also utterly, um, you know, utterly overused. It should, um, you know, if you, you don't need to use a fungicide, uh, you know, 
prophylactically, and they were use, and they were put they were using it as a seed coating. Um, and uh, so it, it's always out there in the field. Um, just really, really bad news. And I'm seeing that this biotic product product that they're pitching is laced with also this fungicide. So they're selling fungus with fungicide at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I asked him about that, and he said, "Oh, um, you know, that's just temporary." Um, you know, soon we'll have a biological control for fungal pathogens. Mm. Um, but, you know, to me, it's just like, oh, yeah. And then the, the other punchline was I went home afterwards and looked up these um, these biotics that they were selling. And they are the most common soil biotics. Like it, almost any piece of soil has it. So they were uh -huh. selling some worthless sort of fairy dust along with a <laughs> fungicide. And that kind of just, you know really got to the heart of the whole project for me that, you know, hey, this is um, a seed company, yes, but it's also a pesticide company and it's yeah. in the business of moving pesticides. Um, and, um, you know, that's that analysis was, was borne out because um, despite what Fraley told me, they were uh, actively trying to buy Syngenta for its pesticide line at that right. time. And they would later sell out to, to Bear. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was it was an extremely fun experience. I I, I really appreciated it. And loved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you were at a summit that Food Tank did where we had Monsanto scientists on stage, and you know, b being able to talk to them, I I think it's always valuable to talk to to folks that you you don't always agree with, but you can come to some sort of common ground. You can learn things like you did. I I, I think that's important for all of us to do. I, I'm wondering. I get asked this question a lot, so you know. Um, and it's, you know, my thoughts on GMOs. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on genetically modified organisms. I mean, this is something that we've been dealing with for more than 25 years. I remember attending protests when I was in, in school and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering what your thoughts as we've seen sort of the evolution of, of these, you know, these seeds and the, the herbicides that go along with them and all of that. What are your personal thoughts? As a farmer, too, you you, you were, you know, you're a, you're a former farmer, probably current farmer during this time, too. So I'm just wondering wondering what you think. Yeah, I just think they're, um, they end up being this really limited tool um, that, you know, what are we 25 years in? So it starts in basically 95. And they've been in the development for a decade, at least right. before that. So we're a good ways in and in terms of just um, straight transgenic technology. Um, Let's set aside CRISPR and that kind right. of thing for now. But um, you know, what have they come up with? They've come up with herbicide tolerant traits that um, are is becoming almost a comedy. Uh, we don't want to get you know too much into that, but just um, the whole dicamba crisis. Um, right. Basically, that killer app that made um, Monsanto really. Um, um, attractive to to bear uh, was that combat tolerant soybeans and the uh, I actually a judge just vacated the EPA re registration of right. it so that that could go to zero um, I, I don't know how that's going to play out but that would be a big blow to um, to bear and make them regret probably even more buying Monsanto then sure. you got BT you know BT crops um, this um, you know naturally occurring soil um, um, microbiota that they've taken that actually kills uh, certain insects and they've taken um, genes from it and created a BT trait. And I was just reading today about um, how the Western corn, uh, you know, basically bug pests in the, in the Midwest are developing resistance to it. 
Um, and so farmers are having to spray all kinds of stuff on it. Right. So those are the two great achievements. And one of them has become basically a black comedy. And the other one is, you know, steadily, slowly unraveling. Um, I used to write about that all the time, but I, I don't sure. write about it as, as much. Um, and I think that like, basically, potentially an interesting tool. I think CRISPR is, is you know, potentially an interesting tool, but um, it's foolish to put a whole lot of stock into that when there's stuff that we know works. Right. It's sort right. of like, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's uh, these next generation nuclear power plants that might be able in at some point to do something that's not as dirty as regular nuclear power, sure. don't have as much waste and stuff like that. And it requires huge amounts of investment and huge amounts of, of government subsidies. Um, but we know that, you know, basically scaling up wind and solar uh, will get us there uh, a lot faster. And, and less expensively. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, the stuff I talk about in the book, just sort of crop diversification um, and things like that, um, we know have dramatic impacts on maintaining productivity while cutting pesticide use, while saving soil, saving water, et cetera. And, um, and so I think those are these CRISPR and GMOs are these shiny objects off in the distance that their promises are always, you know, are always right. about to see something spectacular happen. Um, that never arrives, whereas these other things are um, are right here before us and we can do right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree on, on so much of that because we look at these like so-called silver bullets and we think those are the things that are going to change, you know, and, and make things better. And what's really going to make things better is farmers' knowledge, you know, the regenerative agriculture practices that you talk about in the book. Those are the game changers. And it's not these, you know, shiny new new technologies or shiny old ones too, but it it's it's the things that farmers are already doing in so many cases. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the things about talking to, with the Fraley, and I think that was 2017 or 16, but he um, he was already, I feel like the, um, the idea of, they already backed off of the claims that, hey, this stuff is gonna be the world. Um, sure. And it was, and it's gonna, you know, if you don't do it, um, then then everyone's gonna starve. I, I think that I I got a definite like um, reduction in ambition. That hey, you know, we're a good old fashioned seed breeding company, and we're gonna use good old fashioned seed breeding sure. techniques. Um, I thought that was really interesting. That a lot of those old, those claims. Now you're hearing them for CRISPR, and we keep hearing about how it's not nearly as precise as they were saying, and. Those of us who've been around for a while remember how precise GMOs were going to be and how that was right. going to make all these different traits really easy. Um, that never panned out. Absolutely, absolutely. The the other thing about you know talking about GMOs over the years, they they take up all the oxygen in the room. You never get to sort of you know a. a, a an intelligent conversation around them. People are either, you know, anti or for, and there's very little of that middle ground where there could be solutions. Um, but you're right, you know, they haven't come up with with those actual solutions and they haven't, you know, presented a way that farmers could actually, you know, not be sort of locked into buying these seeds and these, these uh, herbicides and all of these other things. So it's just one of those things that never really lived up to its promises. Yeah. And that's why my book, um, I mention them, but I don't focus on, I mean, I, I look yeah. at, I have a chapter on Monsanto that's more as a, pheno a phenomenon of industrial agriculture and an example of concentrated corporate power. 
but it's not a diatribe about GMOs. Yeah. I, I mentioned uh, earlier that you were you have farmed, you've been a farmer. Do you think that writing this book and having that perspective, I mean, I've worked on farms in the United States. I've worked on farms in, in other countries, haven't been a full-time farmer like I, you were. Do you think that changes your perspective about how you write about food and agriculture, especially in Perilous Bounty? I do because I think it... Um... It really, I think it really helps you um, when you go to talk to farmers. Yeah. Um, you can sort of understand their language and understand the problems that they're facing really quickly. It's all kind of familiar to you. And, um, you know, it's just, I think um, getting out there and trying to make a living farming is something that, um, I mean, I guess I, I, I won't say that um, no one should write about you know, food politics or ag policy without doing that. Um, because it is, you know, it's, it's quite a privilege. Um, and um, it's quite a, you know, it, it is, it's a privilege to be able to do not everyone can, you know, I took, um, right. uh, I left a career as a journalist, um, uh, in uh, a financial journalist to to do it. And because uh, someone, you know, close to me had family land. Yeah. Um, and so not everyone has that opportunity. However, it, you know, just knowing that struggle, like the struggle of I'm going to scratch a living out of this piece of dirt, um, I think really in, helps inform your perspective when you're, when you're writing about this stuff, that it absolutely. is absolutely, it's, it's such a difficult thing. And, you know, I, and for that reason, I can totally see why people gravitate towards stuff like Roundup Ready. Weeds sure. are a pain in the ass. And, um, absolutely. Here, you know, here they're selling a solution that can um, sort out your weed problem. Of course, it didn't work out that way, but that, that was the allure of it. And I can totally see that allure. Yeah. Farming is definitely hard work, you know, and, and uh, farmers are seeking all sorts of different solutions. I, I'm wondering, going back to sort of big ag uh, for a minute, do you think that they can be part of the solution? I mean, you talk about so many solutions in your book, and I want to get to those. But do you think that there's a role for, for big corporations and big ag to be part of the solution when we're talking about some of these problems? That is a really great question. And I think the problem is that um, farming, no matter what, is a low margin business. And um, if any, you know, giant, if, if a company is able to get big enough and uh, powerful enough to make billions of dollars worth of profits in, in farming, then they're, I'm immediately suspicious of them. And sure. it, it, because, because, you know, it's just adding, you know, one more layer uh, between the farmer and, um, and selling food to people or providing uh, food to people. And it's, it's just creating all these layers. And, and so many of the, one thing that I, I despair about is that so many of the solutions I write about, um, just yeah, essentially diversification, um, you know, growing more crops than just two in the Midwest, et cetera, they cut way down on, on agrochemicals. And so where does that leave um, if your seed industry is completely tied in and the same as your pesticide industry, how are they going to be breeding seeds for a program, for a, a farming style that promises to cut herbicide use by 80% or, you know, basically make... Um, fertilizer something you need on the margin and not sure. 
you know, the, the main thing, you know, a, a major business expense. And so I think the incentives are, I mean, I'm just trying to think of how a company could make lots of money off of sustainable, you know, some kind of agriculture that's, that's low input. Um, it's, it's hard for me to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You you brought up the issue of diversification and, and what a lot of folks, I, I, I hate to say on the other side of this, but they talk about comparative advantage and how different regions should be growing different crops and really focusing on those. And you say that that's a mirage, this idea of comparative advantage. And I'm wondering if you can explain that. Yeah. So I think, um, I think comparative advantage itself, um, you know, I think it's a, 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 a perfectly fine concept, but I think that, um, oftentimes when someone is making a comparative advantage and uh, analysis about farming or about food production, a lot of stuff gets left out or just sort of assumed away. And so, you know, California, great example has, there is a lot of comparative advantage. California has got a Mediterranean climate, it's sure. got this, you know, grand uh, Sierra Nevada mountain range um, that collects, you know, basically a huge portion of the weather coming out of the South Pacific ends up dumped in snow there, um, especially for a few months out of the year. Um, and, you know, because of uh, political power, it's got a big claim on the Colorado River, too, in the southern part of the state. And so these, these are comparative advantages that are to be reckoned with. It's also, you know, we should say that having access to, um, for its entire history, essentially a low wage labor from Mexico has, is a huge comparative advantage for, um, right. for California. Um, you know, ruthlessly exploited in general, um, you know, major source of labor there. Okay. Um, but what gets left out is, you know, so these water resources, are, are they being used widely? Are they being used wisely? Are they being used in a sustainable way? And that is the flaw I came up with in my book. Sure. That basically water there, if we're gonna do a comparative advantage analysis of California as to what, you know, how, you know, why it should be such a big vegetable producer and fruit producer, you've got to um, figure out a way that water is being used in a way that respect, within sort of the bounds of the resource. And we've gotten so far out of the bounds of the resource. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I try to make pains to sh say in the book, I'm not saying um, farming should be eliminated in California or um, that the U.S. food supply should not rely on California at all. So what I say is that we should ease up our reliance in California sure. and sort of let the farmers in that state and policymakers figure out a balance um, where the water is not being drawn down at such a um, crazy clip. Absolutely. I, I want to turn to solutions because, you know, that's that's where this conversation is going. And you highlight the the new green, uh, the Green New Deal as um, a step in the right direction. And I'm wondering if you can explain, you know, your thoughts about that, that deal and, and what it can really do for farmers and for agriculture. So what excited me so much about it was the strategy of it was, um, was basically that climate policy in the United States has been, you know, basically captured by the fossil fuel industry. Can't do much about climate change in the U.S. Um, it's been tried and slapped down because of um, this massive lobby. And the same with with uh, with food policy and agribusiness. Um, you know, the farm bill, Dan, you've been around and you know covering farm bills and 
you know, experiencing them as they play out. And um, yeah. there's never any real reform on the table. There's tweaks at the edge. Yeah. There's this throw a little money to this, this or that good right. program, but the right. basic structure sort of keeps this machine in place. And there's a massive lobby behind that. Um, and it's the same companies that we were just talking about. And so what the Green New Deal does is it says, okay, let's um, skirt around them by involving social movements. And the theory of change here is that we're gonna, you know, we're gonna amass public support and like literally demonstrations and people in the street um, behind. And so put that up against your sort of K Street lobbying shop or your, you know, campaign finance shop. So that, that's the theory of change behind it. And I think that is an exciting thing in to see in mainstream American politics uh, yeah. because the old way, I mean, I covered the Waxman Markey climate bill in 2009 and um, the uh, amount of putting aside the fossil fuel industry, the amount of agribusiness muscle flexing in that fight right. was jaw dropping. Um, they got everything they wanted and then the fossil fuel industry killed it anyway. Um, but, um, and so the Green New Deal, um, you know, the actual document didn't have, was pretty vague, um, but there have been things that have been floated since. And, and I think the most detailed roadmap has been in Bernie Sanders' platform that he put out in 2019. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it basically has a bunch of stuff in there that would be great. Um, you know, basically breaking up these big agribusiness companies, um, paying farmers for things like crop diversification, um, figuring out a way to pay for um, storing carbon in the soil that isn't some cap and trade scheme, but that is actual, um, you know, it's actually leading to reductions in greenhouse gas uh, and the public is sort of putting the bill for it. Um, and also um, a big jobs program. And I think that the jobs program has become so much more relevant um, because of the pandemic. Right. We already had a lot of un underemployment, but now we have massive unemployment yeah. and, you know, something like a restaurant industry. Um, I think um, maybe I heard someone say on one of your food take summits that, you know, some huge amount of restaurants are going to go out of business. Think of the workforce Tom that's going to be on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so a jobs program that is tied into um, rebuilding or building a sustainable agriculture program in the United States, I think is a great idea. And I think this crisis as horrible as it has is and has been, um, could be an, an impetus for, right. you know, we've seen that people care and about, they care about racism. They've been, um, we've seen this incredible up, upsurge of, of demonstrations around racism. Right. And I think people, I think a jobs program is going to get a lot of people excited and whether Mr. Biden cares about it or not, he's going to have to care about it um, in 2021 if the present trends continue. That is assuming right. that he wins. Right. Uh, knock on wood. Um, but we're a nonpartisan organization, so I just have to remind folks that. Um, you know, I know Senator Harris uh, is very interested in workers and has marched with UFW and others. I mean, do you have a, are, are you hopeful about her being on the ticket as well? Yeah, I mean, there's some really good stuff uh, with food policy. And um, there's a great civil rights piece about it and uh, a couple of days ago. And um, she um, very impressively has signed on to this Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren bill mm -hmm. that would put a mor moratorium on CAFOs on factory farms. Right. 
um, that, um, you know, all that stuff is absent from the Biden platform and, you know, the DNC pl platform and, uh, and Biden's material, but she's got some great food policy chops um, in there. Right. So I think that is uh, something to be hopeful for. And, you know, she, you know, California did something that shouldn't be radical, but it is radical. It um, extended minimum wage protections to farm workers and taking away, a, 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 you know, at least limiting part of California's comparative advantage uh, with regard to labor and also um, made it to where you have to pay time and half overtime to farm right. workers, um, which in other words, welcome to the new deal. Um, I don't know, almost a hundred years too late. <laughs> and she has sponsored legislation to make that nationwide um, because other states, you know, uh, some, some places farm workers don't have those protections at all. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there are some things to be to be um, hopeful about in her um, in her food policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm wondering, you know, your book focuses on the U.S. And, and I know you did that for, you know, that's your your area of interest. Do you think that, you know, countries in the global south can learn from sort of our mistakes and not follow them in, in terms of what we've done with food and agriculture in this country? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think definitely, but I think we're still seen as this this country that figured out food that, you know, sure. I think, and, um, sure. and, and I think the, the, the development model, like, you know, basically our model of, um, of hog production has been embraced in China. And China is rapidly and has been for a while rapidly scaling up um, hog production along U.S. lines. And I think that's part of the reason why the Chinese government bought Smithfield, uh, the giant U.S. pork producer, mm -hmm. sort of technology transfer, as well as having, you know, you know, a, a source of, of pork imports from the U.S. So I think the answer is yes, but we still are, you know, we have been this sort of beacon to policymakers and, you know, we have stuff like uh, USAID and the State Department um, pushing these ideas and, you know, put, you know, basically saying, you know, basically keeping up the tradition of the Green Revolution, uh, which is, you know, buy these improved seeds and chemicals and all of your problems will be solved. So I, I think there, there's a lot of inertia to get around. Um, and I think, I think we're still in a position where there are other countries that we can learn from. Like I don't know, um, the you know one of the, the over in 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 the Argentine Pampas, there's a um, there's a region very similar to our Corn Belt that they're unfortunately mimicking our Corn Belt by putting in monocrops of corn and soybeans. Sure. But they have a great system of rotating cows through um, doing incredible grass-fed beef and doing a corn crop in the rotation, but not making it the dominant thing. I think there are things that we can learn. I think we're still, we're still in a position that we, we have a lot to learn. Um, but Absolutely. I think, you know, critiques like mine and, and, and others, you know, can kind of put the lie to the idea that, hey, um, we've sorted out our food problem. Uh, we've put off our food problem, but, you know, we've also wrecked up an uh, enormous amount of environmental damage in the process. And health damage, and and uh, absolutely, and worker damage, all of these things, uh, humane and inhumane treatment of animals, all of these other things. Before I ask the final question, I want to make sure uh, folks know how to get in touch with you. They can go to uh, tomphilpot.net. They can go to motherjones.com. Um, they can go to thesecretingredient.org. Um, where can folks buy your book, Tom? 
Where do you want them to buy your book is what I should ask. There's a thing called <laughs> bookshop.org. And it, um, I, I believe some of the proceeds go to independent bookstores. And I've heard really good things about it. And I think it's fairly price competitive with the company that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, so I think bookshop.org would be a, um, a great place to go. And also right. your local bookstore, um, wear a mask um, and make sure that it's, a, it's got a good display. Every, um, every author um, wants to go to the bookstore and make sure that there's a display. <laughs> but, um, right. Be my, be my sort of um, supporters out there and <laughs> make sure that it's a, but I think that's probably the best place is your local bookstore and then bookshop.org. Great. So I, I'm wondering, Tom, if we can, and we'll have all those, sorry, we'll have all those um, websites available on our social media and foodtank.com. So if you if you didn't have a chance to write them down, we'll make sure you get them. I, I'm wondering, you know, uh, given what we've seen happen over the last six months, what your predictions are for the rest of 2020 and 2021. What what do you what are you sort of seeing? What do you think will happen? Um, I am someone who is very worried about the economic situation. And I'm also worried about the lack of, um, you know, just a, a testing regime to get this pandemic under control. Sure. And I think those are two are uh, super um, interrelated. And so I really, you know, they, they took away the $600 uh, a week supplement and unemployment right. insurance. And um, they, they haven't been back to pass anything else. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a good Keynesian. I think that, um, that right now uh, we should be, um, you know, pumping money into the economy to support um, people, workers and people who can't work. Sure. And I think we should also be pumping money into a testing regime. And so here's where we get to my prediction. If we don't do those things, then I, I just, I honestly don't see how we um, avoid a Great Depression like um, reckoning. And, you know, I, I think that um, what's great is that um, there's a quote from Milton Friedman um, that when there's a crisis, uh, policymakers revert to ideas that are lying around. And that's, you know, that's a big part of Naomi Klein's book, Shock Doctrine. Um, and I think we have some great ideas lying around. I think the Green New Deal is just right. sitting there and Bernie's proposal. And um, John Maynard Keynes and the experience coming out of the Great Depression is sure. there. And so I think, you know, we, it's just like people are, are asking me, oh, my God, how can we solve the crazy, you know, the problems that you bring up in your book? And my answer is always, it's actually that we know what to do. It's just sort of, you know, basically diversification. The real problem is political and political economy and how to, you know, get past the, these giant lobbies. And, um, and so I think that we... I am terrified of the uh, the economic crisis that I think is coming, but I'm hopeful that we'll figure out. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll we have the we have the, the the tools and the means to to, to get beyond it as a society and actually emerge from it stronger as a, as a society. Yeah, 
No, that, that's a great note to end on. I am very hopeful that we have the tools and the, the knowledge and the folks uh, to who, who can do these things and, and help us get through this. And, and I'm so grateful to you as a storyteller. I, I do believe that we need more storytellers so that these things are known. So thank you, Tom, for all of the work that you've done over the years. I've learned so much from you. You continue to be a, a beacon of hope in, in, in a really dark time. So thank you so much. And, and I'll, I'll continue to read and listen to you. Um, and I hope folks will join me on our next uh, live cast when I'll be talking to Matt Joswiak of Rethink Food. Thank you so much, Tom. Please stay well. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciated our conversation. Me too. Thank you. This is Rob Perra, Food Talks executive producer. Let Danny and I know what you think of the new podcast format. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.